I can't tell you how many times in the last couple of years I have accidentally recorded with onboard laptop microphone. At the very least, the networking conference call software platform that we use has my good mic in it. It's just a little more compressed than I like it. So I always have that to fall back on. If ever you hear that the sound quality on my end is a little bit less than you expect, and I'm not in some coach's office or whatever, then that's the reason why. Yeah, it happens. I don't know how many audio files we have out there who are really checking, making sure that we sound crisp, clean, high fidelity, but we, we do our best. Crisp, clean, high fidelity. <laughs> Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25 years, and we've had a podcast since 2007. That is this one, the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. It's the only podcast directly from the folks at D3Football.com. As in us, because we're here every week all season, we live and breathe this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. And I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, very exciting. We've closed out the month of October in Division Three football. I've seen the rundown. We're not going to talk about this a lot, but the dance floor is open. We got teams who qualified. We're not going to talk about it a lot throughout the podcast, but congratulations to Ithaca, Grove City, and Wartburg. They're in. 28 more teams still to go. 28 to go, 24 of which will qualify automatically. If you want to know more about how that process works, how that playoff selection process works, you have to go back one podcast in your feed. Did you miss that we had a podcast on Thursday? Number 340, in which we talked with Matt Moore. He is the head coach at Northwestern St. Paul, and he is also the chair of the Division Three National Committee conversation in which we talked about a whole bunch of things some of which were asked this week of us in our mailbag segment and i just sent them back into podcast 340 that is the place to find those things this is the place to find the things about games that end when blocked field goals don't cross the line of scrimmage and they are picked up and carried in by the kicking team that has happened before it happened again on saturday on a pretty Pretty darn big stage. We'll talk about Harden-Simmons finally finding its way past Mary Harden-Baylor and officially into the driver's seat in the American Southwest Conference. We'll talk about Bell Haven's run of unbeaten games this season coming to an end on Saturday. We'll talk about a bunch more as we go through the regions, region by region, to talk about all the big stuff that happened on Saturday. But before we do so, we'll talk about... Our sponsor of this week's podcast, and that is, of course, D3Photography.com. These are the folks who go out and shoot games, Division Three football games around the nation. Maybe a little more Region 5, Region 6 focus this week. So we'll touch on that. And also, some news from them that we get to not quite break, I don't think, on this podcast. But it's important things that people might remember and want to know about. So, if you're interested in the WIAC for Saturday... Uh, you got your Whitewater Platteville game, you got your Oshkosh Stevens Point, you got your Stout River Falls game, and then you've got Central Wartburg. That's a pretty good slate of games from Saturday, must admit. 
That's right, Pat. The crew at D3Photography.com. They're out there each and every Saturday getting professional images of games around Division Three football. I hope our listeners have seen some of that great work featured on D3Football.com from this weekend. In addition to some of the images you've seen on the website, Pat, there are 545 images from the Central Wartburg game. The Knights captured the ARC championship. D3Photography.com documented the whole thing. It looks cold out there, I gotta be honest with you. It did seem cold there. Cold in many places in Iowa and Minnesota this past weekend. I can definitely envision using more Wartburg photos as the season goes on, at least if they advance anywhere near as far in the playoffs as they did this past season. Oh, talking about playoffs. All right, so in the past, D3Photography.com has hosted the Bracket Challenge, the Division Three football playoff bracket contest, for lack of a better term. It's been offline for a few years. It is back coming to us in just a couple of weeks, and I'm very excited about that because, frankly, we did not have the technology. Presto Sports definitely does not have the technology, and I did not have the patience to run anything like that manually, and nobody cares to do it at the Division Three level, but these guys do, and we're looking forward to that coming back, so keep an eye out for that coming up in just a couple of weeks. Don't forget that if you are interested in buying high-quality photographic prints or high-quality digital downloads, go to d3photography.com. Use the coupon code D3FOOTBALL to get 10% off of all of your orders. And thanks to d3photography.com for sponsoring the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast. All right, teased it just a moment ago, but of course the way in which the Johns Hopkins-Muhlenberg game ended on Saturday from two 14-point comebacks by Muhlenberg to the air horn to the block to the pickup to the run back to the touchdown to the stunned silence had all the makings of an epic game and it was one that Johns Hopkins won by defeating Muhlenberg 34 to 28. It did Pat I walked away from this game to go out to watch some live football myself I walked away from this one with Johns Hopkins leading 28 to uh, 14 Hopkins had earlier jumped out to a 14-point lead. Muhlenberg came back. Hopkins out to another 14-point lead. I thought, okay, Blue Jays seem to be in control of this one right around the beginning of the fourth quarter when I walked away. And then imagine my surprise when I check in at halftime of CMS Chapman to see how that game ended. Absolutely wild. Yeah, just in a nutshell here, basically, Hopkins takes a third down sack in the fourth quarter, super short punt from its own end of the field. And, you know, basically I think out to about the uh, 28 yard line or so Joe Repetti, given a short field finds Tim Buda in the, in the end zone, cuts that lead to 28, 21, another third down sack on the next drive, another Johns Hopkins punt, another Repetti touchdown Buda between two defenders in the back of the end zone. And it's tied up at 28 with 243 to go. Johns Hopkins not playing for overtime. In fact, these teams trade interceptions here over the course of the next couple of minutes. And Johns Hopkins gets the ball back on the Muhlenberg 44-yard line. Harvey hits Will Leger for a 22-yard pass just outside the red zone. Then he scrambles down to the 16, down to the 14. That brings on 31-yard field goal attempt to end the game. Now, Johns Hopkins hasn't made a field goal all season. They did kick one through and took it off the board because of a penalty. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But uh, they didn't make this one either. Here's what it sounded like. 31-yard field goal to win the game. It's a good snap, and the kick is blocked. 
picked up on the block. And this is going to be a Johns Hopkins victory. The stunned silence from us up here in the booth tells you all you need to know. Will Leger to the end zone for the touchdown. Frank Rossi was there for in the huddle, and he had a conversation with Johns Hopkins coach Greg Chimera after the game. I think your team is a, is a product of who you are, and our guys play hard, and they're invested, and so am I. And this game is always tight. And I think last year was the same score at our place, you know, so this game's always close. They're never out of a game. We're up 14 twice, and they come right back. And again, just so proud of our guys finding a way. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen a play like that to end a game. On the stream, you can hear there's, there's an air horn right after we snap the football, which I think made things weird. But our guys are heads up. They know what the ball's behind the line. It's live. We practice that. We talk about that. And you saw Will doesn't hesitate for a second with the ball. Uh, just a heads up play. I'm going to have a, a wager here that this may end up on D3Football.com. So for Pronunciation 101, it's Will Leger, right? Leger. Pronunciation 101. Bunavistic. Monon Bell. Bunavistic. Gallardi. Muhlenberg. Worcester. Will Leger. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Will Leger, or it's pretty close. Give those opposing broadcasters some credit for coming as close as humanly possible. All right, Greg. You know, obviously these plays do not happen every day, right? They happen back in 2000 in the second round of the playoffs. Here's what that sounded like. Sorry, Linfield fans. You're going to hear this again. We wait for the snap. The ball is down. The kick is up. It never got off the ground. And Linfield wins it. O'Neal slipped as he tried to kick it. Uh, the ball is still loose. Central runs for the end zone. And then it happened in 2002 on a D3Football.com Game of the Week. Here's Pat Coleman and Keith Mc... You know, for some reason, we don't have an audio archive from 2002. My apologies. What I remember from being at that game was, this is a kick in overtime. Two teams are undefeated, Widener and Lycoming. They are ranked number six and number eight in the country at the time coming into the game. In overtime, this is a kick that uh, indeed uh, hits the back of the offensive line. And the holder picks it up and shovel passes it to somebody. Mike DeMartelaire is the name I remember making the heads up play. And then Widener getting to the end zone and Lycoming just standing around in disbelief for two minutes while the uh, officiating crew discusses this. Meanwhile, Keith and I knew exactly what had happened because we'd seen it just, uh, you know, a year and a half previously. Anyway, you know, with the Centennial Conference lead and essentially maybe just one bit out of that conference on the line or in the offing for the winner. Hard to think there's stakes that are much higher than this outside of an actual playoff game. No. And just a insane end to the game. Like you said, Pat, you've got a short ish field goal attempt from a team that hasn't made a field goal all year. An air horn goes off, which is wild. Kind of looks like some people were affected by the air horn. Maybe some people stopped playing. I don't know if that affected the kick. But heads up to Will Jay picked it up, play to the whistle, not to the horn, right? And he picks it up, yes. runs untouched. I don't think people really knew what was going on. He was in the end zone before most people were chasing him. 
incredible end to the game. And like Greg Chimera said, these are guys that just keep playing. They keep going. And Hopkins, you know, I think stung a little at selection time last year. And they have done a really good job of not leaving doubt about their participation in this season's tournament. I went through and read the rule book on this just to satisfy my own curiosity, Greg. The closest you get to having a rule about artificial noisemakers in this game, because it is a regular season game. I think it's well known among longtime D3 fans that those sorts of artificial noisemakers are banned at postseason games, but not in the regular season. And so I read the rule book, rule 9-2-1-B-5. I promise you that is the accurate reference says that there might not be any recourse within the playing rules unless the air horn was sounded by a player or a coach or a band member or public address or some other, quote, person subject to the rules. I will say this. I am not an official, never have been an official outside of, you know, like sixth grade baseball. So understand that that's where I'm coming from with this. But uh, that's how I read it. And turned out didn't matter if there had been a penalty. Obviously, Johns Hopkins would have declined it and continued to celebrate. Youth baseball, that's a tough assignment, Pat. Oh, my God. I cannot tell you. Shortest of stories, one of the first games I did, team lost 41-1. to And, yeah, I mean, you know, you got sixth graders trying to pitch. Sometimes the strike zone is a little elusive. Let's just put it that way. All right, so while this game is going on, you mentioned you tapped out at about the fourth quarter to go to a game. That's when I picked up the Johns Hopkins-Muhlenberg game because you were tracking that game and I was tracking... Mary Harden-Baylor against Harden-Simmons, right? Number 20, Harden-Simmons. Number 23, Mary Harden-Baylor battle for first place in the American Southwest Conference. Early on, Mary Harden-Baylor misses two field goals. They had one blocked. They had one that cleared the line but was just too low. Uh, neither one of those gets run in for a touchdown, by the way. Harden-Simmons has a touchdown by uh, Colton Marshall called back on a blatant hold call. Get to the second half, big play where... Harden-Simmons jars the ball loose on a punt, and they recovered on the two-yard line. Harden-Simmons was stopped twice, including A.J. Hawkins getting stopped at the one-yard line. They eventually did get it when Colton Marshall bowled his way in across the right side. That put Harden-Simmons up 10-7. Then Harden-Simmons 17-7. Harden-Simmons 24-7. Mary Harden-Baylor answers to cut it to 10 points early in the fourth quarter, but Harden-Simmons looked pretty darn good on Saturday, Greg. They did, and they have the last couple of weeks, I think, have looked more like the team that we saw go up and beat Wisconsin lacrosse and less like the team that was kind of scuffling around after the Endicott game. Really important win for Harden-Simmons. They have not won a lot in this series, and they have been close. They've had some really gut punch losses in this series there's the fire drill field goal the avalanche yep. of turnovers in the third quarter that that turned a game completely around a couple of years ago i think it was just last year but the point pat is important for harden simmons to finally clear the umhb hurdle get that through and now the the runway is pretty clear for them to win the asc at this point and enter the tournament as a conference champion Possibly a rematch with Trinity in the first round. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Of course, part of this is that Harden-Simmons has the key pieces that they lost either right before or during the Endicott game. Those guys are back, including Matt Mitchell. And Matt Mitchell joined us for Fast Five. We'll talk with him right now. 
See you all met. See you all met. See you all met. Fast Five and the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. We're joined by Matt Mitchell. Harden Simmons football team has been rejoined by Matt Mitchell over the course of the past couple weeks. Matt, congrats on the big win on Saturday, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You bet. So tell me what it's like to get back out on the field over the course of the last two games here. Man, it, it feels good. It's, uh, you know, it's it's something that you can definitely take for granted, you know, and playing as many games as I've played in that you think you're just always going to be out there. And when, when something derails you from that, it, it gets tough and it, it just it does feel good to be back on the field. I've never had an appendectomy. What's it like playing football after that surgery? And I know we are now like, you know, five weeks out, but what's that? How's that feel for you? It feels good. I've, I've got a quarterback rib protector and um, I started, I started a little three and a half weeks after the surgery and you know, everything, everything feels good. It's hard to do a sit up, but somehow I can go play football on Saturday. So (laughs) there you go. Um, what was it like when this hit you, you know, basically like the night before you guys were going to fly out to that uh, game against Endicott in Massachusetts? How did that feel for you? Well, it was all week. I was struggling. I just thought I had a bad stomach bug. And uh, finally, the night before, uh, Coach Burleson called to check on me, make sure I was doing okay. And I was telling him his symptoms and we kind of, he kind of was talking to his wife and stuff about, okay, maybe we need to get this checked out before we get on a five-hour flight. And so went in that night, sure enough, had surgery that the morning that guys were leaving. And that's that. It was tough, though. Right. So did you watch that game? What was that like? I don't even know how to. I did. I watched it. It was I mean, it's the first time I haven't been, you know, with the team in five years. And yeah, it was it was it was pretty miserable. Not not seeing the result of the game, but miserable not being able to be there and and just be with guys. All right. So you didn't play in that game. Lost one of your big uh, defensive, uh, you know, colleagues during that game. Lost quarterback during that game. But all of those guys played on Saturday. Tell us, tell us a little bit about what it was like to have the gang back together, for lack of a better term, and also to get a W against uh, Mary Harden Baylor. It was, it was awesome. Um, man, those guys, Kate and Galen, the ones you're talking about, are, are studs, absolute studs. But we've got, we've got a whole crew of them. I mean, every everybody we've got that goes out there on Saturdays, some dudes and. Uh, you know, we, we've been battling through some things the past four or five weeks, like you know, and we've been maturing and we've get, been getting better. And these past couple of weeks, it's been good for us to kind of, um, I don't know the word for it, I, I guess solidify what, what we knew and and kind of kind of get back to what, we, what we're accustomed to doing. So like a lot of people the last couple of years, you are someone who's in the program for a fifth year. You are working on your MBA as well. You've got your bachelor's degree already. What's your class load like right now? My class load. I've got, I've got my last class. Um, I, I've only, I'm only taking three hours. So I'm online. I've been online for my entire master's program. So that's been really nice. And uh, it's allowed me to work. It's allowed me to do certain things so I can uh, continue to pay and continue to, to play. So, all right, so you get your MBA then, what, in December? Is that how that's going to work out? December, yes, sir. And what's next? I'm, I'm going to stick around and coach. I'm going to stay at Harden-Simmons and, and pay my dues a little bit, and I'm going to stick around and, and get back. So, All right, so tell me what it's like uh, for you in your defense. What is it the What are the sort of things that you're responsible for, that sort of thing? Uh, me personally? Yeah. Well, we uh, we run a, we run a bunch of different stuff. We've been extremely multiple this year. Um, 
I'm I'm tasked with getting everybody lined up and getting the calls in and all that. I, I play in the box, sometimes dropping back uh, middle of the field, all around Roman, spine quarterback, stuff like that. It, it's it's cool to, to get to be pretty multiple and, and pretty versatile. But man, we've we've got we've got so many dudes that can play and, and just get after it. And it's it's fun knowing that when I'm out there giving everything for the guy to my right and my left, I, I look over and I see somebody else doing the same thing. So you guys have an opportunity to do something that, uh, you know, not too many people at Harden Simmons have been able to do over the course of the last uh, couple of decades, get into a playoff that doesn't have Mary Harden Baylor in it. And yeah, probably have Trinity and you guys played a really tough game against Trinity last year. Trinity yes, got sir. your number at the end of that, uh, at the end of that game. But, you know, obviously, right. I know everybody's going to say still a couple of regular season games left, but uh, what are you guys looking forward to when uh, playoff pairings come out and that sort of thing? Well, and that's that's exactly right. Like today, when we go meet in an hour and a half, that's what we're going to be talking about. We got we got two more, and uh, on Austin College and Sherman this week, and um, you know the deal deal's not solidified yet. So we've got to focus on the next one and just keep taking it week by week. And uh, you know, if we're blessed enough to go make the playoffs, we're going to go give everything up and make a run. Greg, it's just the second time in 24 meetings that Harden Simmons came away with a win in this series. I kind of forgot, frankly, that the last one was in 2015, but the last one before that was when, you know, Mary Harden Baylor is just an itty bitty baby program. Harden Simmons won the regular season matchup in 2015. Mary Harden Baylor won the postseason matchup that year, and it's been all crew since then. You know, What's important here from Matt Mitchell is he's back and he's in the middle of that Cowboy defense. And boy, that matters a lot, right? Harden Simmons, they got beat up literally and figuratively back in Beverly. They scuffled for a little bit after that game, like we talked about. But the last two weeks, they've gotten healthy. They've looked really good. Galen Glenn is back. He's playing well. Mitchell is back. The Cowboys have knocked out their ASC rival, Mary Harden Baylor. And now we're going to get to see how those Region 3 rankings look. It's going to be very interesting because I'm not sure that it's really obvious, Pat, if Trinity or Harden-Simmons should be ranked higher, and that's going to be a thing that helps determine the location of a potential playoff game somewhere in the first round or two between those teams. There was a moment on Saturday where Matt Mitchell made key plays on consecutive downs in the red zone, had a quarterback hurry on second and goal from the seven, forced Isaac Faye to throw an incompletion. Uh, The next play had a pass broken up over the middle by Matt Mitchell, which uh, was on uh, third and goal from the 12 earlier. He'd had a tackle for loss on that exact same series. And that is the missed field goal uh, is the end of that drive. Basically keeps uh, Mary Harden Baylor off of the scoreboard at that point. Anyway, driven home just exactly how much Mitchell's back and what a difference maker he can be. Endicott, when they played Harden Simmons back in September, they basically just torched that spot on the field. That's the spot where Mitchell would have been a spot where Cade Michna, who was backing him up, who's normally in the starting lineup, would have been in that spot. With these three healthy, we're talking about Michna, we're talking about Mitchell, we're talking about Galen Glenn. I, I don't think Harden Simmons necessarily top 10, but I think top 15, definitely a good call for the Cowboys. Elsewhere in Region 3, and maybe elsewhere in that part of the bracket, uh, at least potentially, was a game of some importance on Saturday as Bellhaven went up to Maryville in Tennessee with their undefeated record on the line. That's right. Bell Heaven found themselves in a rock fight, Pat. I don't really know what that means, but it feels like the right time to use that phrase. <laughs> okay, go for it. 
the Scott defense, they were Bravehearts brilliant throughout, holding Bellhaven off the scoreboard for over 58 minutes in the game. However, the Blazers broke through with a four-yard Colby Blunt touchdown run with 138 to play. That tied the game at seven apiece, and we went to overtime. In the overtime session, Maryville took the ball first, appeared to have been stopped on fourth down, but a pass interference gave the Scots a second chance in overtime. They cashed that in with a Bryson Rollins two-yard touchdown run. On Bellhaven's possession, also facing fourth and 10, Tim Johnson gets intercepted by Mike Bethay, who runs with the game quite literally in his hand, took it all the way back for a touchdown, and that gives Maryville a 20-7 to win Pat, this is the very rare instance of a comfortable overtime win. <laughs> Even with that yeah. loss now, Bellhaven, they still control their own fate in the USA South. Maryville has lost twice already, and they need a lot of help to win a share of the conference championship. Brevard remains undefeated in conference play, but they've got to travel to Bellhaven in week 11. That looks like it's going to be a playoff elimination game or a playoff play-in game, depending on how you want to look at it. Greg, I'm watching this game as it happens, and I'm watching that last play go by. And so, you know, he's taking the interception back however many yards the other way. And the entire Maryville bench comes off the sidelines onto the field. And I am just looking for the flags first off. And, you know, Maryville, they're not really fond of zooming in their camera very much. So you see, like, 85 yards at any given time. If There could have been a flag on the field for all I knew. And uh, it wouldn't have been visible, wouldn't have been, uh, wouldn't have registered as a pixel on the screen. In fact, Maryville had to, in fact, talk to the white hat, talk to the referee, just to make sure that indeed the touchdown counted and the final score should be 20 to seven instead of 13 to seven. Very generous, I think, to overlook the intense illegal participation penalty that uh, would have been called against Maryville, because obviously that wouldn't have changed the outcome of the game. 13, seven would have been a W it was after the interception, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, a fun ending and uh, you know, credit the Maryville defense holding Colby Blunt well under his season average 42 yards rushing on Saturday, more than 80 yards below his average. Big reason why Maryville comes away with a win. Also in action on Saturday, Bethel, Coach Steve Johnson wins career game number 250. We mentioned this just two podcasts seven days ago. Just three coaches right now in Division Three active with 200 career wins. And Johnson is the active leader at 250, 111, and one coaching long enough that ties were still a possibility. So that's pretty extraordinary anywhere, but especially considering where Bethel was when Johnson started at this uh, coaching job. You can hear more about that in a sit-down conversation that we had with Steve Johnson back in podcast 307. And I know we like I know we like tied themes. Pat, we talked about illegal participation on a defensive score. Bethel Concordia Moorhead, I believe, had one of those uh, famously a number of years ago. So there we go. We're just rolling right into another instance of the same thing. One of those 250 wins is because Concordia Moorhead came off the bench and celebrated early and had a game winner called back. And also, before we go to break, please know that our hearts go out to everyone in and around Lewiston, Maine, and in particular Bates College following last week's mass shooting. So Bates, Bowden, and Colby games uh, were all postponed on Saturday. They will be played in week 12. And in addition, Worcester State University had a fatal shooting on campus on Friday night, and the Lancers football game with Western Connecticut, which was scheduled for Saturday, 
will instead be played on Monday afternoon. This game is key for the Moscow title, and we'll talk more about that coming up in a little bit. The game ball. The game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball is going to UW River Falls quarterback Caleb Blaha. I can only assume, Greg, that Caleb heard you mention on a recent podcast that you could give lacrosse quarterback Kaiser Helterbrand a game ball basically every week, and he said, hold my cheese curds. Blaha could not be stopped on Saturday, rushing for 301 yards on 40 carries. Reminder, he's a quarterback. Ran for a school record six touchdowns. He also completed 24 of 33 passes for 234 yards and a score. Crazy performance for Caleb Blaha against a pretty good UW Stout squad and a 49-35 win. That's why he gets my game ball. Helter Brand, by the way, also a game ball stat line if you want to look at that. So I'm glad you brought Helter Brand back up. I asked Matt Mitchell for his take on stopping Kaiser Helterbrand. He's a great player. It was it was a lot of fun playing against him. And yeah, we got his number that day. And you know, he's explosive in the run game and he's got a great arm. He's a really smart guy, he's a good leader. You got to do whatever you can and gang tackle tackle him, get bodies on him. But he's a great player. And yeah, I've been I've been keeping up with him throughout the years. We've definitely gone up against some guys with similar skill sets as him playing in the ASC, but I think his his size is the big difference for how fast he is compared to a lot of guys. A lot of the runners are a little bit smaller and use their legs more. And he's, you know, he's he's a big dude and he, he gets after it. So he's a good player. He remembers that guy. Also, he says he listens to this podcast. So he has certainly heard us mention Kaiser Helterbrand a good dozen times in the uh, weeks since they played each other. Pat, my game ball is going to go to Delaware Valley wide receiver Luan Avdia. Listeners will remember Avdia as the hero for the Aggies in last week's dramatic last-minute win over Lebanon Valley. This week, Avdia opened the game against Stevenson with a 69-yard touchdown reception. The Mustangs later tied the game at 14 apiece with just 71 seconds to play, but then Avdia struck again. Gordon Mann on the call. Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. Can Delaware Valley do it again here at home? Barrios throws across the middle. He's got a man wide open, and it's Avdia. He makes a man miss. He makes two men miss. He's gone. Luan Avdia. Touchdown. Unbelievable. Two Mustangs run into each other in the backfield. Avdia scores in the last minute for the second week in a row to extend Delaware Valley's MAC winning streak to 51 and put the MAC conference race mostly on ice. Avdia finished with three catches for 149 yards and two touchdowns. And for his last minute heroics again, Avdia gets my game ball. If we hadn't already had a pronunciation 101 in this podcast, I would throw one more out there. That's how you pronounce Avdia. I think after the last two weeks, you pronounce it Avdia. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. Right, my stat of the week is one. Not a real wild one, not a singular sensation, not the loneliest number, just one. Maybe fun in the one. If that's the number you append to one of the biggest plays of the day from Saturday, Westfield State took the lead at home against Plymouth State with just 36 seconds left, going up 19-14 on a four-yard touchdown run. Panthers returned the kickoff out just past the 25. They have one timeout and 29 seconds remaining. Quarterback Braden Lynn throws a quick out to the right to Kyle Baker for 10. Baker gets right out of bounds, 23 seconds to go. Long scramble for Baker, only picks up four yards, gets out of bounds, but uses a ton of clock. 
and you've got 12 seconds left. Another quick out for another 10 yards, and Plymouth uses that last time out with seven seconds to go. We pick up from here with the Westfield State call of the game. 7.4 remaining. Lynn looks upfield, surveys, time winding down. He looks to the end zone with the Hail Mary pass is caught for the touchdown. Plymouth wins on a walk-off Hail Mary. Oh my goodness. Are you kidding me? Wow. Wow. Game over. Panthers stun the Owls. I mean, Lynn just threw an absolute dart, put it in a perfect spot. Freshman Jacob Morris makes the catch in triple coverage in the front of the end zone, and Plymouth State wins 20-19. Morris, a six-foot-five tight end, is so far down the depth chart that the broadcasters don't identify him until almost a minute and a half after he makes that catch. It's Morris's first catch of the game, his first catch of the season, and since he's a freshman, it's his first catch of his collegiate career. The stat of the week is one. One catch, 53 yards, one touchdown. And Saturday's 24-14 win for Harden-Simmons snapped a seven-game losing streak in the series for the Cowboys against Mary Harden-Baylor, but that is not my stat. The loss drops UMHB to four losses in the season for the first time since the program's second season in 1999, which is also not my stat. This week, UMHB fell out of the D3Football.com top 25 for the very first time since the poll's inception in 2003. That is a streak of 256 polls that UMHB had been a part of before this week, and that is my stat of the week. Congratulations to UMHB on that accomplishment. We talk all the time about how exclusive the Division Three Top 25 is and for one program to be a part of it every single week for over 20 years. It's really almost unthinkable. Got a bonus stat, Pat. With UMHB's exit this week, that leaves just one Division Three team that has been a part of every poll we've done here. No suspense. Mount Union, once again, stands alone. Let me add an appendix to your bonus stat. So in the polls that we've had, the 256 D3Football.com top 25 polls that we've had going back to 2003, Mountain Union has been number one 131 times, UW-Whitewater 51 times, North Central 32 times, Mary Harden-Baylor 29, Linfield 13, St. John's 1. That's correct that in 20 years, only six teams have ever even been number one for a week. In Division Three football, that is what D3 football is like. All right, Greg, in honor of the alphabetical regional rankings that we're going to get this week, we're going to go region by region alphabetically, and we're going to start with who's in a nosedive in the five, because five comes first alphabetically. Mumbo number five. And the temperature was in a nosedive in the five on Saturday, Greg as evidenced by the big heavy snow falling in Storm Lake, Iowa, where Buena Vista calls home. Buena Vista, you heard it pronounced in pronunciation 101 earlier. BVU lost to Loris 49-21 on Saturday in some pretty and picturesque conditions out on the prairie in western Iowa. High of 30 degrees there on Saturday. Winter is coming, my friend. At least, you know, where I live. Maybe not where you live. Winter's coming here, too. It just looks and feels a whole lot different. Pat, the bottom half of the CCIW is in a nosedive. This week, the CCIW scores included 56-0, 66-0, and 75-0. Those scores make the 44-14 final look like a barn burner. 
We've seen scores like this all throughout the CCIW's league play this year, indicating that there is a massive gulf between the league's title contenders and the rest. Now, I'm not sure that it's fair to expect to see multiple teams competing with North Central, the Cardinals quite possibly sole occupants of the Division Three penthouse right now, but North Central's rise is not bringing up the rest of the conference with them. Obviously, big score is not unique to the CCIW, but yes, they definitely have had more of a CCIW kind of a set of results this season. All right, Greg, that was Region 5. Next alphabetically is Region 4, and who's restoring the roar in the 4? Sons, what the 4 by 4 is for. Mount St. Joseph is restoring their roar this week with a 55-0 win over Franklin. Not only did the Lions pitch a shutout, they limited Garrett Cora to just 75 rush yards in the game. On the other side of the ball, MSJ piled up 703 yards. Josh Taylor threw for 545 yards and eight touchdowns. And Cornell Beecham Jr. caught a school record 15 passes for 250 yards and four touchdowns. MSJ and Rose Holman also winners this week. They remain on track for a week 11 HCAC de facto title game. If you want to know more about Cornell Beecham Jr., we did a great feature on him last year. He's also a national champion wrestler for Mount St. Joseph. And I'll put that link here in our show notes. That's a pretty loud roar, obviously, for the Lions. Let me ask you, Greg, is Wabash restoring the roar this season? I asked that because Wabash took it to Wittenberg on Saturday, beating the Tigers 52-20. to Early in the season, the Little Giants lost 28-24 at Denison, but they still have a chance to not only win the Monon Bell against arch-rival DePaul in two weeks, but clinch the automatic bid from the NCAC as well. And maybe they even have the opportunity to return a punt on occasion. I went through all the box scores. I found they did return a punt this season. I don't know if that's a glitch in the stats or what happened on that, but man, uh, I'm, I'm now I'm asking you seriously. Wabash restoring the roar. Wabash looked really good on Saturday. I will say that. And if they played that well, Monon Bell in week 11 for all the NCAC marbles is going to be a doozy. DeBaugh has a bye this week. Wabash is playing Hiram. I'm pretty sure that Wabash, whatever you say to be, you know, polite and above the board, they're prepping for DePaul as well coming up in two weeks. I'm a real wild one. Pat for Region 1. See, I did the map. I know which one comes next. It's my understanding that there would be no math. In the one, who's getting it done? Getting it done in the one. Hamilton on Saturday, they came back from 17 points down and they beat Tufts 36 to 34 in quintuple overtime. Yep, you get to quintuple overtime and that is the time when you start getting to what I like to call penalty kicks. Basically, from overtime three on, you only play one play, your two-point conversion play as things go. Hamilton had been down 17 points. They came back to tie the game at 17 going into overtime. Hamilton converts those two-point conversions in the second, fourth, and fifth overtime to come away with the win. In that final overtime, Matt Banbury ran right out of the jumbo package and got past the jumbos into the end zone in the final overtime. And Tufts' attempt failed on a fade attempt from quarterback Michael Berluti to Cade Moore. So big win for Hamilton as they improve to 2-5 and five and had fun doing it, I can only assume. Also, I want to say thanks to a couple of sports information directors who have helped us out in getting access to locked up archive videos so that we can review some things, get some details for the website, details for the podcast. So 
Thank you for helping us out. UMass Dartmouth got it done in the one this week, knocking off Moscac leader Bridgewater State 34-14 to to create a three-way tie atop the Moscac standings. If UMass Dartmouth, Bridgewater State, and Western Connecticut all went out, we're looking at a tie break that gets resolved by way of the NCAA strength of schedule metric. In the Moscac, there are only two non-conference games, which means that any one game has a really massive influence on the outcome of this particular tiebreak. Western Connecticut has a big advantage here. Their lone non-conference game against Merchant Marine is a separator when you compare to the other non-conference games against MIT, Curry, WPI, and Nichols that Mass Dartmouth and Bridgewater State played. Another instance here where bringing a quality non-conference opponent onto the schedule could pay off. Hat tip to the Moscac here for encouraging that kind of competition. Only now as you're talking about it makes me think, is Joe Loth playing like three-dimensional chess here? Because they only had one non-conference game this season. Merchant Marine's pretty good. If you couldn't find a second non-conference game against a team that you thought for sure was going to raise your strength of schedule, would you just not have one? in order to be in good position if you are in a three-way tie? It's an interesting proposition, Pat. I think unless your institution is good with nine games, I think most coaches that I've talked to when they talk about scheduling, priority one is to get 10 games and have maximum competition opportunities for their student-athletes. I don't know the reason why Western Connecticut only schedules one non-conference game, but... Um, this is an instance where certainly it's helping, at least at least not having a second game that could drag their strength of schedule back down toward where Mass Dartmouth and Bridgewater State are is a helper in this case. Merchant Marine, by the way, six and two overall. They only have nine games. They have a bye again this upcoming week before going into the Secretary's Cup at Coast Guard in week eleven. Greg, who's up to their old tricks in the six? Six feet. Chapman, they're up to their old tricks, and they've continued their turnaround with a late comeback 14-10 win at Claremont Mud Scripps. This is where I was on Saturday afternoon. Trailing 10-0 with 14 minutes left in the game, Chapman finally found some traction offensively as Luke Peterman engineered a nine-play, 75-yard drive capped with a 23-yard touchdown catch by Gian Lagerman. The Panther defense, they then forced the Stags to punt just three plays after on the next possession, and then Peterman went to work again. Logaman almost scored the go-ahead touchdown on a very similar crossing route that scored Chapman's first touchdown. He was pulled down just short of the goal line. Peterman capped that drive with a one-yard touchdown run of his own to give Chapman the 14-10 lead with just three minutes and 28 seconds to play. CMS, they had one last rally, though, as quarterback Walter Kuhlenkamp came up with two big third-down conversions, one a scramble to convert on a third and four, and then a third and 12 completion to get CMS into scoring range. The game came down to a fourth and goal at the five. Kuhlenkamp scrambled away from pressure, bolted for the end zone, but his dive for the goal line stopped just short by Colin Keefe and Kyle Sieben inside the one-yard line. Chapman hangs on to win. And presuming a win against Laverne next week, they will play in the Skyac Championship game in Week 11 against the winner of Redlands Pomona this Saturday. Up to their old tricks in the six could certainly describe the state of the Northwest Conference right now as Linfield and Whitworth remain undefeated going into Week 10 and 
presumably going into their week 11 showdown. These two teams have been pounding people. They're both 7-0. If you look at some of the common opponents, Whitworth beat Lewis and Clark 63-21. Linfield beat them 57-15. It's uh, against Willamette. Whitworth won 59-17, and Linfield won 70-14. Against Puget Sound, it was 63-21 in favor of Whitworth, 55-6 in favor of Puget Sound. Whitworth not getting much traction in top 25 polling right now because their entire non-conference schedule is against Eastern Oregon, which is an NAIA member, and Chapman, the aforementioned Chapman, who they beat 24-17. And frankly, for that matter, let's not forget, Linfield only beat Redlands 17-10. The non-conference schedule doesn't merit right now where Linfield is in our poll. It certainly doesn't merit where Linfield is in the AFCA top 25, where Linfield checked in at number four at last check going into Monday's next poll. But, you know, looking at those two teams coming up in week 11. Pat, what do you see in the three? Three comes alphabetically after six. And what I see in the three this week is one of the most interesting turnarounds for a Division Three team this season. It's just not often that you see an ON8 team come out and blow the doors off anyone, even if the opponent is a one-win team as well. But that's what Greensboro did on Saturday. They obliterated Southern Virginia on the road 47-7 for their first win of the season. Alec Williams' car threw for 285 yards and six touchdowns, while tight end Ryan Buchanan had two catches, two touchdown catches of his four catches for Greensboro. Salvage more than a little pride on Saturday. It's only the seventh win for Greensboro since November of 2015. That includes a win that they got in the COVID season of spring 2021. Big win for Greensboro and worthy of mention here. Certainly something to see in the three. I think we've hit on all of the conferences in the three except the ODAC. So that's where I'm going, Pat. Over in the ODAC, Randolph-Macon just keeps buzzing along, and this week they won pretty comfortably 35-12 to over Washington and Lee. The Yellow Jackets got three rushing touchdowns from Nick Hale in the game. Randolph-Macon now with head-to-head wins over both Bridgewater and Washington and Lee, who each have one conference loss. They can wrap up the ODAC automatic bid next week with a win against Ferrum. The game, that's capital G, versus Hampton-Sydney in Week 11, will not have conference championship implications as the Tigers have already lost twice in league play, but it could matter a lot for Randolph-Macon's chances to be ranked number one in Region 3, which can then have significant impact on how many rounds of NCAA tournament games the Yellow Jackets could host. Greg, who's making do in the two? RPI is making do in the two this week with a dominant 49-10 win over Rochester. The Engineers have just a three-point overtime loss to Ithaca, blemishing their record this year. Not that that particular context matters, as we learned in Podcast 340. RPI is 7-1 and one on the year. They will have to win at Hobart next week, and as we know, winning on the road in the Liberty League is hard. But if they can't handle the Statesman, we could be looking at a potential Pool C play-in game against Union for the Dutchman Shoes in Week 11. Dutchman Shoes already has great stakes associated with it already, right? This is a rivalry between the folks in Schenectady and the folks in Troy to have not only the shoes, but also a chance at an at-large bid on the line is going to be a big deal. And this game is in week 11 the way a rivalry game should be. That's all I have to say about that. All right. 
making do in the two. Christopher Newport definitely doing that right now as well. They've been off the radar of the bigger picture a little bit after that last second loss at Dickinson back in week six. But the captains do keep chugging along in NJAC play, and they sit at 4-0 in the conference with two contests yet to be played. By my math, CNU clinches with a win in either of its last two games, which are at home against Montclair State and then at TCNJ. CNU completed just 7-15 passes against William Patterson on Saturday in a 33-13 win, but Patterson was just 5-15 of 15 passing for just 37 yards and had just 81 yards of total offense. Obviously, there were a bunch of other great total defense games that happened on Saturday, which we did not mention here, but they also existed. Coe with a big statistical game against Luther. Brockport, once again, big statistical game defensively, this time against Utica. We did not forget about you guys. We know you happened. Also, Coe got into the top 25 for the first time since 2016. I think Coe knows that we saw that they exist. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. Time for the mailbag. You know how this works. We put out the call on social media, primarily on the X platform. And this is from Gary McGarvey. At G McGarvey, that's Garvey, G-A-R-V-I-E. Any chance that both Linfield and Whitworth get in? Meaning, if Whitworth beats Linfield, would Linfield get a pool C spot? Dot, dot, dot. Follow-up tweet saying, or if Linfield wins, would Whitworth get a pool C? Both SOS are not great, but both are very good teams. Pat, I think you you touched on this a little bit earlier. Tried to avoid touching on it so that we could talk about it here. My apologies for previewing the answer to this question. So the NWC runner-up, whether it's Linfield or Whitworth, they're going to be a one-loss team either way. And let's keep in mind now that we have four at-large spots. The NWC runner-up is not going to look much different than Carnegie Mellon or Muhlenberg or Barry or Coe or Mount Union, if they should lose their game or the RPI Union winner. I've already named six other teams that are kind of indistinguishable from the NWC runner-up. And I have not mentioned St. John's or Wisconsin Whitewater or Wisconsin River Falls. Wheaton is another one that I didn't mention. I don't know how a at-large resume that is devoid of a win against a ranked team and with a mediocre to not good strength of schedule is going to measure up. The primary criteria don't necessarily measure how good your team is. I think Barry is really good. I think Barry has a terrible resume to get into the tournament, but that's not the selection criteria. NWC runner-up, I would not count on it unless all heck breaks loose in the last two weeks. Just looking at the numbers of the way they stand right now, obviously both Linfield and Whitworth will get a strength of schedule boost from playing each other. But right now, Linfield with a strength of schedule of 479, or if you are the kind of person who thinks of it in terms of the ranking, it's 146th out of 229 teams for whom we measure strength of schedule. Like Linfield has a slightly better chance. Then you go on to Whitworth. Whitworth is uh, almost a full page further down. They are at 175th. Their strength of schedule is 460. 
I don't really see a good path for either of these two teams, unless, like Greg said, there is just mass chaos in all sorts of things over the course of the final two weeks of the season here. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. The kind of chaos that we have not seen really at all this season. Yeah, it's been a very favorite heavy year. And unless that just goes kablooey here in the final couple of weeks, I don't really see a path for Whitworth. People ask the same question about Muhlenberg, by the way. Muhlenberg's resume, slightly better, but Muhlenberg also will not have a win against a regionally ranked opponent. Their strength of schedule is at 550. Big boost from 510 up to 550 by playing Johns Hopkins on Saturday. Put them in the pecking order ahead of those teams we just mentioned, but behind so many of the other teams that Greg talked about. Thanks for the question. You can do so by looking for our call for questions on Sunday afternoon. Be sure to use that D3FB hashtag. People follow that and those tweets get more traction, folks. That is why we keep saying that every Saturday. It's time for games to watch. And Greg, I'm headed back to the Wyack and back to UW-River Falls. Back to River Falls in person, in fact, to see UW lacrosse at River Falls. I'm not entirely sure how many playoff bids ride on the result of this game, but it's uh, it's certainly enough of them. Perhaps also an opportunity to do some scouting for All-American purposes, since between Caleb Blaha and Kaiser Helterbrand, who knows, we might only have one spot on our All-America team. Luke Lanen, uh, Braxton Plunk, Jeff Horn, Zach Boys, Leon Thompson. That's seven guys I just mentioned for four All-American spots. Obviously, there's way more to these teams than the two quarterbacks, but I look forward to seeing it all unfold in week 10 at River Falls. It's my game to watch. Pat, my game to watch is number two, Mount Union, making the quick drive up to number 13, John Carroll. This is a very high playoff leverage game and our first chance to really see Mount Union in a high-pressure game. Mount Union, they've been great all year, if maybe at times a little uninspired, but never ever in any danger of losing. Otterbein managed to score two touchdowns on Saturday in the last seven and a half minutes of the game against the Purple Raiders which brings the grand total of touchdowns scored against Mount Union to four. That's what the four by four is for. That's the score in the four. John Carroll nearly took out UW-Whitewater in week one, so we've seen the Blue Streaks play against the upper tier of the division, and they should be ready for this game. Mount Union, they've won 31 straight road games, so they're quite comfortable on the road. This one likely going to determine the OAC's auto bid, and the loser of this game is going to be the focus of some very intense scrutiny in the pool C discussions. Greg, I love that stat, but of course that stat that Mountain Union has won so many consecutive games on the road is tempered by the fact that those are almost always games in the OAC. They've been very rarely sent on the road in the playoffs, and that is where a lot of the high leverage games, shall we say, happen is in the playoffs. Rarely, used to say never. Now it's just rarely. Also coming up this week, we talked about Brockport ever so briefly. They have their Empire H showdown against Cortland. This is a game that has upset potential, folks. I'm just saying it right now, even though we did not talk about it earlier. Wash U goes to Wheaton. Big game for Wheaton, especially. Mentioned RPI Hobart. Mentioned Redlands and Pomona Pitzer. And then one of the favorite new rivalries on the block comes up on Saturday as well. It's a trap. It's a trap. That's right, Husson at the University of New England playing for the Lobster Trap. Husson, winners of the first two editions of the Lobster Trap game. We'll see if UNE can break through and get their get their hands on that trap. There are obviously other places in which teams can clinch 
automatic bids on Saturday. There are places in which teams can play places in which teams can clinch automatic bids on Saturday on the sidelines. We'll keep you up to date on all of that. Probably we'll talk about it in quick hits. I am just guessing that's a possibility. Time for on the spot. Associate producer Damara O'Malley asked me why you didn't put me on the spot in our bonus podcast 340. And I said, because my on the spot to Greg was so on the spot, it put him on the spot. If it's not in the rundown, I don't read it. Greg, my on the spot for you. No surprise. It's alphabetical. What I'm asking you to do is just predict the team listed first in each regional ranking this upcoming week. These come out on Wednesday afternoon, probably late afternoon is when regional rankings come out, especially the first one. And this one, I don't even call it a ranking. It's a listing of teams alphabetically. And this is to have given Greg some time to go through our alphabetical listing of teams and determine which one is going to be listed first in each region. Oh, my goodness. All right. Here we go. In Region 1, Pat, I believe the very first team ranked in Region 1 is going to be the Bridgewater State Bears. All right. Bridgewater State in the one leaders of the Moscac or a leader of the Moscac as we speak. In Region 2, I'm looking at Brockport as the first ranked team. Let's see. In the three, I believe, I will say the first ranked team in the three is going to be Barry. Barry, that means Bellhaven out. Keeping an eye on Bellhaven's strength of schedule, no doubt, with that uh, suggestion there. In the four, I think pretty clearly, I think in the four, we're going to see Alma at the at the top of those rankings. In the five, it's going to be, ooh, it's going to be one of the first two teams that you can possibly choose. And I'm trying to decide if there's enough room for Augustana in the region five rankings. I'm going to say yes, Augustana nudging just ahead of Aurora. And then we're out to the six. In the six, I think our first team listed is going to be Bethel. Bridgewater State in the one, Brockport in the two, Barry in the three, Alma in the four, Augustana in the five, and Bethel in the six. All right, Pat, time for you to go on the spot, and we clearly have done this way too often because my on the spot is also alphabetically themed. (laughs) Last week it's colors, this week it's alphabet. I love it. I'm going to give you a quick block of four games to pick, and I want you to pick winners, but alphabetically. All right. And so our games to watch for my alphabetical winners are Bridgewater at Washington and Lee, Wittenberg at Ohio Wesleyan playing for Ye Old Skull. It's always a great, great trophy game there. RPI at Hobart and Coast Guard at WPI. Sounds good. Well, let's see. I look at these games and I think that uh, I like Bridgewater's season this season, but I don't think I picked them to win this game at Washington and Lee. So Coast Guard is my top alphabetical winner. And then we go with RPI. 
uh, which I guess means then I have to go with Washington and Lee and Wittenberg. I thought for a second I might think a little longer on Wittenberg against Ohio Wesleyan, but once I picked RPI, I could no longer do so. So I guess I'm picking Wittenberg to come back after consecutive defeats and take back Yield Skull. Whose skull? You, I don't. I don't want to know. Never mind. All right. So the winners of these games in alphabetical order: Pat likes Coast Guard, then RPI, then Washington and Lee, and then Wittenberg. Of course, last week I asked Greg to pick games from our pumpkin spice selection of teams within Division Three football. These were teams who either have orange in their official colors or reside in the city of orange or are named after a spice. And I asked Greg to pick five treats, five tricks, and then three smashed pumpkins, smashed pumpkins with where a team was going to smash the other team by, I believe I said 30 points, which I went back and I thought, whoa, that's way too high. I should have revised it. Turned out didn't matter. And here's why. So for treats, Greg picked Susquehanna, Hobart, Heidelberg, Wheaton, and Wartburg. That's a perfect five for five sweep. All five of them won on Saturday. Tricks, Buff State, William Patterson, Hendricks, Ohio Northern, Barely, by the way, Utica, Handley. All five of those teams lost. We get to smash. We got Hope against Kalamazoo. That was a smash. Whitworth against Lewis and Clark. We even mentioned that score earlier in the game. That was a smash, but... <laughs> Dickinson against Gettysburg. That was not a smash. Pretty good, though, Greg. I'll make sure I send you a gift card for Pete's Coffee so you can get your own pumpkin spice whatever you do. 12 out of 13, not bad. That's definitely going to boost my on-the-spot efficiency rating. I uh, look forward to somebody posting that on X at some point over the course of the season. Last week, I asked Pat to predict the record of teams that have red in their mascot name. Cortland defeated Hartwick 73 to seven. They're the red dragons Dickinson. They're the red devils. They defeated Gettysburg 28 to 23 Eureka. Also the red devils. They lost 21 to 35 to Concordia, Wisconsin Montclair. They're the red Hawks. They lost to Rowan 14 to 21 Ripon. Also the red Hawks. They lost to Monmouth 45 to three. Pat predicted a two and three record for the red teams and two and three is exactly how they did. And Pat also got all of the games correct uh, as a bonus. Perfect week for on the spot for Pat Coleman. All right. And then we had that bonus on the spot that I mentioned earlier. So in Thursday's podcast, a chat with the chair, that's podcast 340. I asked Greg to guess the attendance for Saturday's game between W Platteville and UW Whitewater at Whitewater. Greg guessed 10,212. The actual retail price, sorry, the actual attendance, 11889 and Greg's our winner. Not quite close enough to get both prizes, but close enough to take the win. I'll take it. That's right. Well, I mean, I went over, I guessed 14137 I probably needed to also factor in the weather, not just homecoming and not just the opening of deer season in Wisconsin. Last week in quick hits, in terms of upsets, the Panel really liked number 25, Delaware Valley, as kind of the low-hanging fruit on the top 25 vine. That made some sense, but Delaware Valley escaped again, and we had a week with zero upsets in the top 25. I picked River Falls as a possible upset pick, looking pretty good going into the fourth quarter at UW-Stout. Rest of the panel picked DelVal. None of us get any points. Our panel picked a number of teams to 
boost their profiles ahead of this week's regional rankings. And I'm giving credit to everyone here. Brockport, they were impressive in their win over Utica. Alma continued their march to a 10-0 regular season. Bethel stayed on target with a comfortable win over Carlton. Randolph-Macon won and is the last remaining undefeated team in Region 3. And then Frank's hedge of the winner of Springfield Merchant Marine, that pays off. How could it not? Somebody has to win that game. But I do want to point out Frank's note about Springfield's strength of schedule and the possibility that the Pride are very much in the conversation for being ranked number one in the one is astute. Our panel was also asked to find the closest score in the MAC this week, and incredibly, every game got picked. There are six people on our panel. There are five games in the MAC, and there were contests of 38 to 9 and 31 to 14. And then there was 34 to 26, which is close, 21 to 14, which is closer, and 24 to 19, FDU Florham beating Eastern. Point to Greg on that one right there. And finally, we spotlighted the four active quarterbacks with over 10,000 career yards of total offense and asked which one of those four would have the highest total offense in week nine. Liam Thompson and Braxton Plunk, they had really good days in big wins for Wabash and Mount Union. Methodist Brandon Bullens had a little more difficult time against North Carolina Wesleyan, but in the end, it was Kobe Berghammer with a 413-yard day of total offense in Oshkosh's blowout win against Stevens Point. Eight touchdown passes for Berghammer in that one. Ryan Tips and Logan Hansen, they each get quick hits points for a correct response there. Greg, do you remember earlier in this podcast when I named seven quarterbacks for our four spots? Kobe Berghammer was not even one of the seven I mentioned. That's a guy who's got to get talked about as well. The Wyatt could sweep our Region 6 All-Region team. I'm thinking, and the answer is yes. Are you talking about an all-region team that does not have space for somebody like Aaron Severson? Well, it's certainly possible. We have some difficult decisions coming up in November and the early part of December. Thankfully, we have all the way through the postseason, all the way to the Stag Bowl, basically before we really have to commit as to who our four All-American quarterbacks are. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 341, released on October 30th, 2023. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for continuing coverage all season. We just came off of a great week of feature stories, a defense week. We're very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers who help make that happen with their financial support. You can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash D3 sports. And even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alum about the show. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined, because that is really a thing in the algorithm that helps other people find this show. We're a very niche audience. We understand that. More people could listen to this show, however. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on X using the D3FB hashtag. I post from at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering a post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. It's written by Patrick Coleman and Greg Thomas. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music, Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks. You can find them all at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Matt Mitchell for joining us for Fast Five. Thanks to Sports Information Director Chad Grubbs for setting that up. Thanks to Michael Abdella, Jim Taylor for their assistance in the course of this podcast as well. Keith McMillan, he was the OG host and he was the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com. 
We're super grateful for that. And grateful for Greg Thomas, columnist, co-host, quick hit editor. All of those things. At the very least, you should be in a good position to know how to pronounce Skyak. Have not heard anybody pronounce that any other way. Much less controversy about that than Weak. Never say Weak. Never say Weak. Is that the one you can't do? Well, it's just not right. It can't be right. The Weak is the W E A C. It just can't be. It can't be correct. Fair. Is the like- Meak is the M E A C. The Myak is M I A C. The Wyak is W I A C. If you want to pronounce it just W I A C, that's perfectly fine. People have called it the Wisconsin Conference, and that works. The Wisconsin State League is still a thing that people say. I think hearkening back to when it used to be the W Suck, the Wisconsin State University Conference, I'm not making that acronym up. I feel like this is like the different ways you can slice a grilled cheese sandwich. You can go, you can go diagonal. <laughs> That's good. You can bisect through going through the rounded half through the middle that way. But if you bisect with the rounded half on one side and just the flat side on the other, that's wrong. That's never occurred to me, but my kids were always triangle grilled cheese eaters anyway. Oh yeah, corner to corner is the way to go. What does this theory think about cutting it into four? Because when the kids are really small, four pieces has got to be acceptable. I think when you're worried about uh, food as choking hazard for small kids, you can chop it up however you want. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time. 